Passing Dimes is over the moon to partner with Betstamp. Betstamp is a mobile app in the sports betting space that shows you the odds from every sports book in one spot. Do you enjoy betting on the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, World Cup, or more? With Betstamp, you can compare the best available odds at one sportsbook versus the worst odds at another sportsbook all in one place. Go to the App Store today and download Betstamp for free and use code DIMES. That's D-I-M-E-S. For a limited time, Betstamp is offering you, a friend of the show, an opportunity to learn more about Betstamp and several sportsbooks where you can get an edge in online sports betting. Message the Passing Dimes Instagram or Facebook account for more information. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. Should have got her on the show sooner, but uh, shout out to friend of the show, Lisa Tam, for the hookup here. So she's a two-time uh, Paralympian. She's been to Parapan Games twice, where she's two-time bronze medalist, and recently won silver at World Championships for Team Canada, where she was named the MVP. Please welcome to the show, Heidi Peters. Heidi, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I think everyone was just over the moon excited, uh, really watching the sitting team and watching the live stream. I think it was great coverage for the event. So congratulations on that. But uh, to kind of take it back before we get there, uh, I noticed you've been on the team since 2013. But growing up in, in small town Alberta, I'm sure you were playing other sports or had other interests growing up. So what, why don't you take us from the start? What made you fall in love with sports? Um, I would say my dad, he's very like athletic he never played like super competitively anything in his whole life but he just like played like sports and is always into sports like follows the Oilers follows the Blue Jays like both in following and like just playing sports his whole life kind of um yeah small town small town Alberta like you said um I'm from a really 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 small town not even a town called Newlandia it's literally a hamlet sounds like Narnia um (laughs) I played softball growing up just like I'm six weeks in the summer, really chill. And then through like junior high, high school, I played volleyball, basketball, badminton school, just kind of played like every sport through school sports. And then when I uh, moved schools to, I went to Barhead high school, a town near us. And I played badminton and volleyball pretty much exclusively more competitively. I went to provincials with badminton, uh, the two years that I was there and played, um, like I went there in grade uh, 10. So in grade nine, when I was still in their idea, I started playing club volleyball with some of the market girls. So nine, 10, 11, those years, I also played club additional to, to school volleyball. So that was my more competitive sport and definitely my favorite sport. It was kind of like volleyball is a sport of that town. I think every town kind of has like a sport. that's <laughs> like their main thing. And volleyball definitely was that my older cousins played. And yeah, I just kind of, I always knew that I wanted to play and yeah. I just, it's the source of all, like most of my good friendships still from my youth and from high school. And I just think it's the best sport. I just love (laughs) it so much. Yeah. So, so just for reference for, for me and the listeners. So you grew up in a Hamlet, how many Mm -hmm. towns or Hamlets combined to make your high school team in Barhead? Like how many communities were like that's the central high school? That's a great question. Um, like the net, like, so the next town or like rival town over from Barhead would be Westlock. And that's probably like a 40 minute drive. So that would be like the radius. Um, like my Nearlandia class of grade nine was like 25 ish students. And we had a bigger class. And then my grad class was probably, oh, I don't even know. Probably like 175. Wow. Okay. Which is like. I had to think about that. I did photography in high school and I made the like things that go on the walls in high school, all like your grad classes. Like I designed those. So, like I literally can see it exactly <laughs> in my head. So yeah, we had a bigger, a bigger grad class. So for number reference. Nice. So to jump ahead there, uh, my understanding is you got some pretty bad news in grade 12 that kind of interrupted your sport career and your, your academics there. So, uh, just take us through that. Like, uh, how did you identify it? Was it just a a normal checkup? Like just walk us through that process. Yeah. So I was in my grade 11 year and playing club and kind of towards the end of the season, like we were never like very good by any means. It was my high school team. Like we played div two, div three, like we just played cause we wanted to play. But, um, I kind of in, I don't know, probably April, like thought I had shin splints, um, based on nothing, based on myself, just like having a sore shin. <laughs> and, um, 
I mean, chin splints are typically, my understanding is a little closer to your knee, like a little bit higher up, but mine was lower, kind of right above my left ankle. And by the time, like by June, early July, um, I had developed a tumor on my left shin, uh, kind of on the outside of my leg, just above my ankle. And it was approximately like three inches by two inches, like pretty big, like even almost the size of a palm in like area and probably like almost an inch, like off my leg. Like it was pretty, pretty big from like nothing from just like sore shins. Like in people, like in the span of two months, it was like, um, became something. And I mean, truthfully to this day, to my recollection, like I never thought like, oh, that's a tumor. I had cancer. It was really serious. I just was like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> I should probably go get that checked out. Uh, it feels really stupid now, but, uh, so in like the middle of July, I went to emerge just in Barhead and I mean, it's like clearly pretty serious. I got an x-ray and then they referred me, um, to the kind of orthopedic department of the Stollery. I was young for my grade. Uh, like my birthday's in October. So I was 16 at the time still. And when you're 17, you go into adult, um, care, uh, if you're 16, you're still in pediatrics. So I was quite fortunate that way. So I was referred to the Stollery, saw an orthopedic surgeon, had a biopsy in late July, early August. Um, and then waited for results. I think it was early August and then September 9th, uh, that was 2011. I was diagnosed with uh, osteogenic sarcoma, which is bone cancer. Same thing that same cancer that Terry Fox had. Um, and by that time I had like, I did full body scans and it had progressed into my lungs. I had three masses on my right lung as well. Um, so from who knows how long it was right, like growing my body. Um, and that was pretty tragic. That was like, I was diagnosed the first week of my grade 12 years. So I didn't get to play volleyball that year. So when I say that I went to bar for two years and played, like that's, that's why I only say two years. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like somebody just hit pause, like on my life. It was really strange. I had major lung surgery. I had those masses removed like two weeks later. And I was doing chemo like three days after that surgery. And I did about 12 weeks of treatment. Um, and then met with uh, an orthopedic surgeon, again, a different one. And he recommended amputation. Like my tumor was not responding to the treatment at all in terms of shrinking. Like ideally they would, it wouldn't go away, but they would want to shrink it to be able to just take it out and like have you keep your leg. But it, my, my body wasn't really responding at all to that. So um, he recommended amputation. Um, they kind of, it didn't really feel when I say it didn't really like feel like it was a choice, but it just felt like the best choice right away. Like I didn't really like grapple with the, de the decision of whether to save my leg or not. Um, he just presented it as the best like quality of life option, which I kind of blindly or like naively accepted. And I think it was <laughs> the right choice, but I didn't like ask a lot of questions. Like limb salvage would be a lot of like metal in your leg, a lot of pain, um, less like a mobility, like less quality of life, um, a greater chance your cancer will come back etc so it's like yeah just like get rid of it um didn't know any like small town didn't know any young people with a disability anybody with an amputation at all let alone somebody my age um then i did i had like i took um i had my amputation december 12th then i was like off for about three weeks i didn't do chemo and then i was back for, for in over new years i was doing treatment again for like 32 more weeks. Like I did treatment till the middle of August. Um, so overall I did about 44, 45 weeks and yeah, it was really terrible. I didn't go, <laughs> go to school. Um, all my friends like doing like the grade 12 year and I'm like, oh, they're still my friends, right? I'm not like going to school. I'm not like doing, doing high school, not don't get to play volleyball. Um, I grieved like knowing that I wouldn't play indoor the way I wanted to. I wouldn't have played like I would have played rec like in university like I wouldn't have played at a university level from like where I was at but still like not physically being able to play at all was really um difficult and I just like gave it up I'm like no like I'm not gonna be able to my amputation is quite short like it is a bloating amputation but it is quite close to my knee and it just um makes like if I want to play indoor even more difficult so I yeah did most of my treatment in in a wheelchair like learning how to walk 
again, I normally after an amputation, you'd probably start walking after about like a month, like you'd get fitted. But for me, just like slower healing and chemo, like I, I took about two to three months off in my healing of my incision. And then I learned to started learning to walk again in March. So through my treatment, I was doing physio that whole full time and longer process than someone wasn't on chemo. <laughs> so I was like at the stallery doing chemo and then my day off, I'd be like, I was like, no energy, like no blood counts, like doing like laps around just to like learn how to walk. So it was a very different time of my life. Um, yeah. And I think it was in January, like soon after I lost my leg, I met Jolan Wong, who's my current teammate right now. She's, um, she was the captain at the time. She still is my teammate. Um, she volunteered there. She previously in her life had the same cancer and she had the a vanessa procedure done. I believe she was 13 or 14 when she lost her leg. And she was volunteering with her husband. They did like pizza night, and I was like doing chemo and like not hungry. <laughs> so I don't even like pizza. So my mom was like went to this room um uh, just to hang out and she got talking about yeah, I'm here with my daughter, she lost her leg, blah blah blah, volleyball player, and Joan like literally like ran to find me and then was like explaining like who she was, what sitting volleyball was. I was like, on oh, so many drugs. Like I'm not hearing it. And I thought I'd never play volleyball again. <laughs> I was like, not, I don't know if I was like mean, but I definitely was not like kind and not like receptive to it. It just was like really sad. And like, who is this stranger? Like mom, why did you let this person in my room? <laughs> just was, was not ready to hear it, but it just like kind of, it always stuck in the back of my mind. And Jordan like knew she said, like, she'll like, contact me again if she's ready, like eventually. And then when I was done treatment, it was like summer 2012, I went back to high school. I just like, uh, did my grade 12 year. Some, like I was done in August, which was also almost exactly a year after I was diagnosed. It's like someone just like hit play on my life again. And I just like resumed. I went back to high school, all my friends and like went to university and I just like started again. Um, and and I thought, mm, maybe I'll try sitting volleyball because I knew I was going to move to Edmonton for university the next year. It'd be a little bit easier to practice. And then May of 2013, I officially went and tried out for the team. Made it. So that's loosely my journey. <laughs> um, now, do you think if if sitting volleyball, if that happened a little bit later, because now I think uh, the exposure has grown. It's part of the coaching context. So you maybe would have been exposed like you guys do great things like demo matches at either provincial or national championships. Like, do you think you would have been more receptive to it? Because I'm just trying to give the listeners context. You being a high school athlete, you probably I don't know if it's fair to say, have you ever seen sitting volleyball when Julian was talking to you the first time? No, um, I should actually. This is fine. This is the first time I've actually thought about this, but I met. um before my invitation, I met Austin Hinchy, who plays on our men's sitting team. Um, and he played at Nate Indoor. Um, and he, I don't know exactly the connection, but um, my junior high volleyball coach's son, who's just five years older than me, played at, I think, university or club, like against or with Austin. So, like, um, my coach Frank Raymond had that connection and he reached out and like Austin came to visit me in the hospital before I lost my leg. Um, same amputation as me, left leg below the knee. Um, and he obviously played sitting volleyball, but we didn't really talk. I don't really, I truly don't remember talking about sitting volleyball at all. If we did, like, I don't, I consider like my interaction with July, my first like experience to it with Austin. It was more like, Hey, I'm just like a young active person who loves volleyball, who lost my leg. Um, so I did, I met him actually as well. I, but I didn't know about the sport at all. Like I, no, no idea, which was very interesting. And even like at club tournaments or things at the Savile, like there might've been like sitting volleyball happening there and like demos usually like we do training camps during like big Savile volleyball tournaments now that I'm on the team. But when I was like <laughs> that high school student, I was like not paying attention to it, had no idea. Um, and I know some like people on my team, like their high school, like coaches have like just Google it and like reached out and like, is there like an adaptive version of volleyball? Like, and then found sitting volleyball that way. I was like, I'm never playing volleyball again. Like I am so like, just I'm done. Like, and both like, I didn't know this existed, but I wasn't like searching ways to play it differently. I was like, I can't do it the way that I know how. So I was 
So knowing that, what was the first impression when you're in the gym? Cause you're trying out for a team and obviously the details of the sport can be quite different. Like, is there, is there a lot of teaching going on at the tryouts or are you kind of in over your head and trying to pick it up as you go? Like what was the, the format and how did you feel that first time you got to play sitting? I went to a practice with my, my best friend from high school. She came with me. We went in actually December, 2012. Um, just like dropped and tried it for the first time, like one day. So it was like a mix, the men's team, women's team, like athletes in Edmonton. And I just remember it being really fast and uh, sitting down, like being weird, like your hip flexibility is like a struggle, struggle bus. <laughs> and you just like, don't know how to move. I just, yeah, the speed I think was the first like thing that I really like picked up how much faster it is and how many more balls you play with your hands than your platform. Um, but the, the game itself is like still the same on the contact. So immediately I was like, Oh, I'm like playing volleyball. Like I feel like I'm playing volleyball. It's so similar enough. And it's like, you feel like you're playing volleyball. So I was like pretty hooked. I was like, I know I'm going to do that next year. I can't right now. I can live an hour and a half away. Like it was too, too hard. But then when I went back actually to play and like go to the selection camp, um, there were not very many girls. A lot of girls had retired slash quit after not qualifying for the London Paralympic Games. So that was a like literally four girls maybe came back like after that. It was very like complete rebuild um stage. So there were like for sure not 12 of us then it was like seven, eight of us like really a a rebuild time. So it was not very like overwhelming to go into you because it was like national team and wearing the Canada gear like coaches etc the men's team women's team we would always train together not actually together but at the same like weekends back then and their program was was bigger um so it was like overwhelming to go into and I still felt like I remember feeling (laughs) underqualified underskilled (laughs) like but really not like anybody who can play volleyball who like acquires a has a physical disability is qualified by any means to to play um yeah I just remember just feeling like a sense of community like I get to play my favorite sport again in a different way it's weird but it's still fun and all of a sudden I am surrounded by like people men's women's team but specifically a group of women who have physical disabilities who like are pursuing sport at a at a competitive level and that was like immediately like a sense of belonging especially growing up like small town didn't know anybody didn't have any like immediate contacts all my friends were still like my friends, but it's different to have a, a community that you identify with. Um, so my immediate reaction to the sport was excitement, but also <laughs> it's very frustrating to play when you try sitting on balls. <laughs> For sure. So th- this is fascinating. Obviously the, the start of a new cycle and athletes retire. And I, I don't think that's unique to sitting. I think that happens to every sport uh, who's trying to qualify for the Olympics, but I am curious how fast you went from being like a little bit nervous to making the team to, did you guys start talking about Rio or you started talking about Toronto, uh, Parapan games? Like how soon does those goals meetings start coming up or, or talking about the Paralympics? Um, I would say right away, it's even a goal. Like um, I think it's always like for Joanne, her, like through her childhood, her goal was literally to be an Olympian <laughs> and then she acquired her disability and then that just shifted to be a Paralympian. So like, that was like her, like that language was there right away. So like qualifying for Rio was um, in the talks 2013, maybe a little bit early, but then we got enough players that I felt like soon within like a six month to a year period that we had quite a bit more girls, like two more from Edmonton, two more from Calgary. Um, One girl who had retired after London did come back to, after we qualified for Rio, but uh, she came back. So we like we rebuilt the team within that quad to have a team. Um, the language was of like qualified for Rio was there, especially with it being in Brazil. We knew the qualification process would be easier and different because Brazil would get the host spot. So, and the USA would qualify by getting first at Worlds or um, first or second at Worlds, actually, um, because they were the best team. Or one of the top teams then. So our ability to qualify out of our zone, out of the Parapanam games was was huge because that spot wouldn't be taken by Brazil or the US. So we would have to be whoever was coming and that ended up being Cuba, a team who 
that was like their first tournament as well. So our ability to qualify was just a lot easier um, with the Paralympics being in Rio. So we were quite excited for that and qualifying on, on home soil and playing in Toronto was huge. Um, yeah, that's literally even wild to, <laughs> to think about. We were just so like babies even back then too. I was like um, 18, 19. Like those were just very still like formative years, like just early like university years. I just was like, now I have a disability. I'm finding like my way in the world, like with a disability now, like playing parasport and just like figuring out like who I am. And it was just so crucial to have that like support system through that. Like that was more what it was for me then. I wouldn't say at all that I consider myself like a high performance athlete at that time. I wouldn't say um, that our program was even like a high performance program, even though it's a national program. That's just truthfully, I think like the culture where even like also I was at then I just was like, really figuring out like who I was. I really struggled like with a lot of self-worth and self-identity issues like through high school and like at a disability <laughs> on top of that. And it just was like magnified. Um, yeah. So after Rio, it was nobody, one, one girl retired, one, one girl left, but otherwise it was kind of adding people to the program. And it really, I would say that's when it really kicked up like 2017 and onwards was really where we like shifted our culture and the buy-in was really there. And we're like, we can be a good program <laughs> and we want a Paralympic medal. So. And did uh, Toronto maybe aid that playing on home soil and showing other athletes that uh, one, the program's competitive, but to do it in on home soil, that must've got some positive attention, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, it was huge. We had huge, huge crowds there. Most of our family came and watched and the, I believe that it was streamed. I'm not, I can't actually recall, but it was, it was, yeah, huge exposure, um, for the sport and for parasport in general, like having the parapanum games, they're not even just like sitting on all of them, but having like a bunch of parasport there. Um, and people don't really know, like sitting volleyball is a really new parasport. Like people are familiar with wheelchair rugby, familiar with wheelchair basketball. Like those are like just team sports that, that people are, understand or are aware of regarding parasport sitting volleyball different. It's, I mean, not a wheelchair sport. It's, it's physically different. Even people in parasport world are learning more about it. It's, I mean, in theory, you're a little bit more accessible of a support of a sport to try. You don't need a chair. You just like, right. Can show up with like whatever body you have, whatever, like you just sit down and play and try, um, which is very cool. The sport itself. It's, um, like, like being good and being successful and at it, it caters to certain like body types, like primarily like our team is comprised of amputees. Like it's, even with any sort of like paralysis or issues like that, it can be hard, hard to like sit down and play. So it, it does like cater to a specific type of, of disability, like you could say. Um, but that's really just the case with any, any parasport, which is kind of like exciting. It's like, I don't know. It's like a team sport that you can play when primarily like amputees would be um, like in track or swimming or in some sort of different like sport it's you don't see to my knowledge i'm truthfully not an expert and don't know the makeup of the wheelchair basketball wheelchair rugby teams but the, they're not primarily um amputees playing those those sports it's more of a like uh like any like muscular dystrophy or lack of like muscle in like the lower body or like like a level of paralysis or like things like that primarily more wheelchair users are playing those sports where setting on is a is a team sport option different different body types so it's it's just very yeah so i'm glad you brought up uh, the the team culture and you know talking about these big events and being a paralympian because uh when covid hit obviously everyone gets shut down and i'm sure that put some extra stress on you guys being camp space because now you can't meet up and train right but my understanding when we had uh, danny on the show you guys had a great group chat you were meeting very often everybody was accountable to the group so can you just take us through in your own words you know covid hits and everybody gets shut down but you guys are still being high performance athletes and still working on your goal right yeah 
literally yes <laughs> we uh i believe we met uh for sure every month we had a zoom meeting and like i would say like our chat or like communication with each other increased we have like a like our main team chatted but also our no coaches chat um just like with us athletes and just what we were doing and how creative we were being like creating like bounce back boards, like in garages that people have so they can practice themselves, like hitting against walls, pending if you live in an apartment or not, like everybody unique into their own situation. Um, but I bought my roommate um, at the time worked out like a lot, was very in, in gym world. So we bought like a lot of workout equipment, bought a Peloton, like all the stuff, like really like, dove into it daddy made a whole like gym her grad her graduates the gym like squat rack everything <laughs> like people went hard very different levels um and just doing like yeah weird drills against the wall like setting like in doorways back and forth just like all the kind of creative ways to really just keep the ball control um yeah it was a unique and creative time and like i mean as weird as it is to say i think everybody felt like that well, it's like fun being at home for those first like couple i mean it's a global pandemic but we're all like sweet we get to be at home for the first like couple months and i mean i think it, we're fortunate that it happened like in summer too so we could like be outside i'm fortunate to live in a house but we could we as in edmonton like we could meet up and do like workouts in parks and stuff like distance and still see each other unfortunately we couldn't travel and meet like as a team um but the ability to be outside through that summer too and play and i would just like recruit my friends to like hit at me <laughs> just like get huge like pieces of cardboard and like sit in the park and be like pretending that like that's like my cord and just doing different ball control drills. So um it was a it was a unique time and we kind of embraced it. Like we had literally qualified in Halifax February twenty ninth, like on leap day. <laughs> um and then like the world shut down like two weeks later. Like it was truly chaotic. <laughs> um for us we're like sweet we get like another year to to train. We were very like Nobody knew at that time what if the Paralympics happened that year and then we couldn't like have to, we qualified and then don't get to have training camp until like the staging camp before we leave. Like that would have been a very stressful situation for all like teams going. Um, but we supported Canada's decision to not go and we're excited is a weird word, but like knew that we could, we were like a resilient, adaptable group and just kind of roll with it as it goes and just looked at that as an opportunity that we could train for another year more before. Um, but it was very difficult for like programs that hadn't qualified. Like a lot of swim and track trials happened in the summer and like very close to to the game. So that I'm sure was very difficult for those programs. Like our men's team was supposed to leave March 16th for Europe for their last chance qualifier. And they like, like they obviously didn't go. It was like the day that like the world <laughs> shut down, they were supposed to like leave. So it was, for us, a unique and sort of privileged situation. We got to qualify, got it in, and had like a year or 18 months that we could could train. And it wasn't easy by by any means riding the waves of COVID, but just staying connected and staying kind of focused on that that long-term goal and wanting to be in that top four in Tokyo. Um, yeah. And then working through the challenges of having camps when we could and so many like what are the protocols of the government of the province of each individual like space, like the training centers all have their own like rules, et cetera. And what do we as a program want for, for our rules? So it was, it was a lot, but I think it also prepared us for um, training before, like we went to Oklahoma before we went to Tokyo um, and trained with the U S. So we got to do like travel COVID protocols. Then we did our two week quarantine in Toronto and trained at the CSI in Scarborough. Um, the government let us do our two week quarantine. We all stayed like in houses and would like walk to the gym and, and train. So that was like a unique situation. So all of that prepared us for, for Tokyo and having to do tests every day and having to wear masks and like all of, all of that. So it was a unique games. I think the worst part was not having any fans. <laughs> that was, uh, that was, that was sucky and, and weird, but, uh, yeah, just to jump back to the Halifax thing, uh, 
with Brazil and USA typically in our zone and our qualification pathway, does that help you stay confident going into a last chance qualifier? Or maybe you're like, well, we're trying to be a top four team in the world, but we might not even get to go to the games where like, is it just this challenge state that you're in that you're feeling confident knowing that like you can play with USA and Brazil. So when you go to a last chance and you play against, uh, I think it was Ukraine in the final or Slovenia or those types of countries that like you're, you're comfortable cause you still feel like a top dog, even though you are going to the last chance qualifier. Yeah. We, uh, I think are fortunate to train a lot with the U S like you got to play the best to be the best. And I think that's a huge part of like a lot of our successes is, is playing them, them over and over. They play similar, well, different, like I guess structure on court and they have different like strategy that, um, for their game, but like the play structure of volleyball, um, it's different playing the European teams. It's a little bit less structure, a little more scrappy. So like it, that's a little more unnerving going into the last chance qualifier, knowing the types of teams we'd play Germany, Ukraine, Slovenia um there's a bit of a different style but we I'm grateful that we we trade with the U.S. as much as we do um and Halifax was six months after like not qualifying in Lima um we lost to Brazil in that bronze medal game and it was it was frankly terrible <laughs> we did, didn't show up it was bad it, we just like didn't um yeah, didn't show up, didn't compete, and just like we're just it was just a poor game. It was a bad game. Um, they absolutely deserved to win that game, and it was very hard. We had a team meeting after that, and we're like, we are just like buying in for these six months. Like we we are hosting a last chance qualifier. We are winning a gold medal and going to Tokyo. Like this is the last chance. So these six months, it's go time. It's through Christmas. It was hard. Like it was a grind. Um. And we really all bought into that. So Halifax was the first time that we like won a gold medal, won all our games, like that winning, like became a part, like competing became a part like of our culture. Um, and it was very, it was huge. It was like, like a huge shift, I think, in the culture of our program too, like literally winning games <laughs> and being competitive and being expected to win. Um, and it was fun having a home crowd. It was like an intimate kind of setting and, and having fans there again, on home soil was awesome. Um, it was stressful. You have to literally win <laughs> to qualify. So, but, uh, we had a lot, it built a lot of confidence in us going, going through that. Yeah. It was stressful, but it was, it was that was a big, I think like shift in our program. That yeah. Take us, take us through that. Like, uh, when you're preparing, are you big into journal? Are you big into video? Like, how do you prepare for that? Because I think in sports, sometimes the, the, the Disney movie really celebrates the underdogs where sometimes I really respect the team who's supposed to win and does win, or they can win back to backs or like everyone in the gym knows, Oh, they're the favorite. And all of a sudden people start cheering for the underdog. Right. So when you set your mindset and say, I'm supposed to win this tournament, how do you get through the day to day and stay connected to your goal? Because your, your mind can really wander in those situations. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because we would, as a team probably consider ourselves the underdog still, even though we are gold, like we, because we don't, we haven't like beaten the U S we haven't beaten Brazil. Like we, we have that like underdog mindset in our zone and just like, I don't even know what our world ranking was then like ninth or eighth or something. Um, so like going, I don't even know if going in the favorite is like even language <laughs> that we would use. We just were like, we know that, that we can win. We just really committed to our system. Um, and even like our last tournament before that 2018 worlds, we got seventh and like top eight was our goal. That was still a huge tournament for us. And, um, every kind of step I think led and then, yeah, leading into Halifax, leading into Lima that it kind of crashed and burn and then coming like out of that to, to win. Um, I think we really committed to our systems and focused on what we could control. We really like, I would say had like clear objectives. Like we're a tough serving team, like focus on our serves and really like implementing serve targets, like things we can control process wise, like really um, just like having a good time and like our serving pass and taking like those practices like seriously, but not like too seriously, not be too like outcome focused. Like if we just play our game, then good things will happen if we hit the ball down the line, like we're going to score, like just like things like simple, quote unquote, simple game, game plan things that are relative to our style of play. And that's kind of when we started to build 
into like our style, like serving, serving tougher and and attacking certain shots and like um, having pretty much still playing a six two, then having two quite good setters like running at the same time, um, really honing into to our our game. Um, yeah, it, it's yeah, just funny to think of like. I would say that we thought that we were underdogs, but we like knew we could win after those first couple like pool play games. We're like, we, we know we can do this, but it was the f- first time that we, not the first time we by any means ever like done video or anything, but like the first time we were like winning truthfully. So it, it was, um, yeah, doing video as a team, like really all being on the same page, understand, like watching our hitters, understanding their angles, knowing which way we're blocking on certain people, like really upping, like what we did in our game plan as well, getting two on their primary attackers, et cetera, things that are all just volleyball strategy, but things that um, we were all like buying into and all being on the same page. It's it's different too in Paris where everybody coming from different backgrounds and different like, levels of understanding volleyball and city volleyball strategy being... <laughs> there's really not even one right way to do it. Like it's such a new game to everybody's just like figuring it out as, as you go. So really just like upping our expectation of ourselves and our culture. Yeah. Without getting you in, in trouble with the coaches here, I, I was hoping you could share, like when you bring up system or strategy, what's something somebody could look for? Cause I think we all watch sitting and we enjoy it because of the speed and the length of rally and how scrambly it can be sometimes. But when you say a system, like what does the USA do really well? Or when you say like, you know, hitting down the line, it's a high percentage. Is that because the perimeter of the court is just uh, more valuable because of the way the movement of the game and where the blockers are? Like what are some, maybe yeah. some general tips that like people who love volleyball can watch a sitting game and then identify what's going on tactically? Some teams, I don't even know, know like if every team has like actually a full system, <laughs> but teams that would have definitely a system, the USA definitely has a style that they like to play. They um, don't like to make errors. They'll keep the ball in play. They'll really wait for their opportunity to score. Like they primarily, this last World Championships was the first time I've seen them switch up their defense in a very long time. They primarily have played a six up defense. Um, they're huge. They have like, they're all tall. They're all great blocking team. So they don't, just say serve terribly tough because they're a really strong block defense team. They know that they can block defend and they know that they can defend transition score. Their offense is so fast with, with their primary setter number 14 that they can block defend and transition with speed and just like get a seam and score like that's, that's very their style. And they don't, uh, I shouldn't say don't, everybody makes errors, but like they really like do the tip and roll and then wait for their opportunity to score kind of, kind of a game. Um, you might think like, oh, they're quite aggressive just because they're like large, big attackers, like aggression that way, but they really are, are quite smart. Um, versus like us, we're physically a smaller team. I would say it's pretty well known. Like we serve quite tough. Like we definitely serve the hardest internationally at any team, all of us. Like, I mean, I've really honed into my swing serve the last like couple of years. Like I'm hitting the ball. Ideally, probably depending if I'm hitting in a lane or over a block, but like if I'm hitting in a lane, probably like 60 points, like that's probably like where like my sweet spot. Um, and that's a lot faster than anybody else is serving. Even all of our float serves though, you'll notice they're we're sitting farther back off the end line. They're really dropping. Like we've really worked in our service game a lot because we're not as big, like at the nets, we want to put teams that kind of trouble out of clutch. I mean, everybody wants that, but that's primary, a bigger part clearly of our strategy. We serve a lot tougher. Um, and we offensively like run a six two, so we have two. You can just like tell watching us. We're trying to always have backhands where like in, historically the Americans run a pretty traditional as per indoor five one. Like same, same switching. A big difference I would watch is like every team kind of has a different service strategy because you can block serves in sitting, so it's very different <laughs> indoor. Um, so strategically i would say that similar to indoor probably always almost always if you're smart going to serve like the off blocker like in person in four like i pass to attack when i claim four um so that would be like a serve target similar to indoor but i would watch like our servers hitting lanes are there like three blockers are there two blockers that's kind of a strategy that's different um 
serve targets could just be like serving in a weaker passer, like a same strategy, or it could be like going on a lane that's right there. Some teams like move when they block on serve. So like also a strategy. Um, that's there's really no like right way to do it. Every team kind of has a different they ultimately just go out there and like hit your best serve, but it it affects your strategy. Like serving against the Americans, they're big blockers. So we have to like move them and then find lanes for ourselves or serve over them just because they're physically a bigger presence. You can't just like rip balls on the tape the whole game. It doesn't doesn't work like um, in sitting. And but the serving I would say in general also is a lot tougher in the women's game than it is in the men's game. They're increasingly more spin serves um, in the men's game and more tougher serves, but they're just so like big blocking in general. Like it's a, usually the, the serving is quite a bit actually easier in the men's game just because they can't hit it with pace unless they're like aiming for hands. They just aren't, there are no lanes <laughs> low to the tape. <laughs> um, so that's yeah, kind of specific, I guess, serving is in the women's, but specifically for us, that's, that's a strategy. Um, so for you personally, that. like that's, that's a big strategy is just to identify, are they going to put three blockers up when you're serving? Mm-hmm. Or are they going to drop back? And then that's going to influence the lane you start to attack with your spin serve. Yeah. And some teams like wait on the block. Some of them are like up there and have to go around. Some I like, know, I know what athletes like to like move. And I can tell who's going to, like, I can just see my peripheral vision <laughs> if they're like, if their hands are up or if they're moving, if their hands are up, they're not moving. So I know like my lane is there. Um, just yeah, different different things or they'll if i'm like on kind of a run they'll start to move like after just different <laughs> different things or pass with four like in theory an indoor passing with four is easier but it's not easier in sitting because it opens up net space so like your default in sitting would, would be to keep three at the net so that you can block as much space as possible it's kind of the opposite strategy of indoor um yeah and then Defensively, I guess, like teams, yeah, like I said, the Americans have played six up. They're lucky because they're big. They can pose a lot of blocks, but it's pretty like dangerous to sit <laughs> right there and sitting. Like you see a lot of six up in the men's game and like you just get balls like, pumped to your face. Like if you're not close to blocks, like it's a pretty intense place to play defense. But I mean, in sitting in general, you play a lot more like with your hands too. So you just like, get in that seam and just literally put your hands up. <laughs> but Primarily, teams like don't um, don't play that defense. Brazil a little bit, um, but they also have quite good, quite big middles that can close as well. So it's kind of depends. It's not such like a set structure as indoor. It, it depends on the team, the bodies that are out there, who's who's playing, who's better in what position. Generally, um, generally less like switching as well. So people often ask me like, what position do I play? Like I just sit like outside attacker, but I do primarily attack out of the left side but it would be like 60 percent. like i still hit in the middle i still um hit on the right side nice uh so take me into world championships prep because uh i understand there's been some things happening where yes you guys are still a camp space program but between uh i think it's the dinos club in calgary now they have a sitting court and i see the men's team having training camps like they're crazy you're in edmonton and i understand there's training opportunities so even though you're still all over the country and it is camp space uh is it fair to say more regular training is happening for some athletes yeah like when you say camp space that would be like i guess we call that like a decentralized like model um, where we are not centralized, <laughs> the opposite of centralized. Um, everybody training <laughs> two to three times a week, ideally in their hometown, but it's hard to be on court if you're by yourself. Um, but that's kind of the expectation at home. And then, yeah, previously we would come together about every four to six weeks, we would have camp Edmonton leading into Worlds. Um, so, really, normally tournaments would be in the summer, kind of weird to have it in November. But um, in August, September, and October, we had each month had um, we had a two week period where we trained every day full time. That was like a period where um, athletes could come in, could move to Edmonton, Airbnb, like that would be all covered, etc. Um, to come and train if that was able with their their work schedules and stuff. So we had much more centralized periods than we have in the past. Um, so most most athletes came and would like work remotely and came and trained for those two periods. So that's already six weeks of us being together. And then we also within that two week period, like a mandatory four day like weekend that was actually set as training camp. 
100% all of us are there for those four days. Um, first time kind of implementing a higher centralized, more often model. So there was there was flex in there with people being able to come in and out in those two weeks, but those training camp begins still mandatory. Um, outside of those, um, we, as Edmonton athletes, were training every day. So we, outside of those, you could say centralized periods, we still were full-time training here. So if athletes wanted to be here longer, they could be. Um, some of the men's athletes came and trained with us because <laughs> they had camp in Calgary. They don't have a centralized model, didn't have as much training leading up to world. So they just came and trained with us, lived here for a period of time to train with us Edmonton athletes um, because all of our, st- our head coach and our assistant coaches and our physio are all in Edmonton. So we just kind of took on a full-time training here for anybody that wanted to stay longer or et cetera. Um, that's the first time that we've been able to do that. It was a lot, but really awesome. Huge for also the body, like being, being in volleyball every day. Um, it's a lot on the hips and a lot on the shoulder if you just like jump in and then do that all before. Um, but it's been very, it's, it, yeah, very exciting to have that much more centralized like periods before. It's due to, yeah, definitely an increase in funding, definitely like funding, seeing the, the podium potential in us and really giving us those resources and our coach being able to like now be our full-time head coach. So she's 100% setting volleyball all the time. That's, that's huge. Um, yeah, much more training than before. Before a major competition previously, we'd be together for like maybe 10 days before we left. And like four or five of those being like mandatory, like that would kind of be a pre-tournament centralized now it was like months <laughs> of training every day. Yeah. I think uh, the coaching staff is obviously top tier and very committed, but uh, seeing a familiar face, uh, Lionel gets added to your roster. Now that, that could have been a risk, right? Because you're adding someone new to the environment. And, and I spoke to Lionel the other week when we were in Ottawa together. Uh, he mentioned he was learning the game as you go. Right. So what was it like bringing in a new guy? Obviously he's, he's committed a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of scouting, a lot of learning, but uh, easier said than done to bring in somebody that late to a world championship. So what was it like having your coaching staff, but then adding a guy like Lionel to the roster? He's the best. <laughs> he first of all, just like great demeanor, great attitude, great energy, like just so chill, like happy all the time. Um, so kind of like naturally fit with everybody, like with staff, with us, with <laughs> I even like our heart poems founder being there. Um, we had heard about him like before knew that he would be coming obviously never met him didn't knew like his qualifications and obviously he's extremely good at what he does but didn't know really anything you could say about sitting <laughs> just kind of flying let's see his pants as he went um and he was very like we all met him and he was like would chat with any of us but he didn't really like he wouldn't like run like our coaches run video sessions like he just would do all the coding and all like the scouting and like game plan like with them and then so he wasn't like directly you could say like um working with us more indirectly so in that way it was still comfortable for us getting the like, game planning obviously from our coaching staffs i know teams do it differently if their video person is more of a coach etc like i think moving forwards if that's a, something he wanted to do more talk to us more but some of us would just go and talk to him for advice anyways <laughs> just chat for his perspective <laughs> but um we all really just had a lot of confidence going in and like he knew our previous, we had, um, I don't know his last name, but Jason uh, came with us to a tournament in the Netherlands. Um, he lives in Canes in France and he, he coaches with a protein there. So he did our video and I know that they have a, a professional relationship. So that like, it was just, we knew that he would be good and that he came from a volleyball Canada space and he was just so, like also excited to learn. Like he just was so excited to figure out the codes for sitting, figure out the strategy, just like see different teams and what they do. And, and like, it was very, we went to Italy for about five days before we went to Bosnia. So we trained with Italy for we played five days in the last two days. We played um, like just full, full matches. We were doing scrimmages and mixed rosters before the last two days we played full matches. Um, and just yeah, good for him to get coding practice to like get, get the speed and figure it out for those days. And then he got to really like learn our team, learn our bodies, learn, learn our system. So he could give us like advice and really coach what he thought like our best like assets were and work with our staff on that. So that was very helpful 
for him before before the tournament, it would have been extremely, I think, overwhelming <laughs> for him to jump right into like literally the tournament coaching, right? Like scouting right away. Um, so those those days were were helpful. But so yeah. did all of this add up and help make worlds feel a little bit different uh, in terms of you're training more, you have a full-time coach yeah. now, they add a staff person, the high performance directors around more, like uh, all this support and funding that leads to to more time. Like, did that help make worlds feel different? Or like when you see USA on the schedule, are you kind of just like, here we go again? Or now do you feel like more ready for that challenge? Definitely more ready. Um, it's like interesting when you get into competition, like less is more, like you just have to know, like I've literally been playing volleyball every single day for three months. Like I'm like, I I'm in it. Like just trust yourself and go and get your game plan, go play. Like it's, it's a different vibe. And you do Yeah. Before it would be like in a certain past, like you want more reps because like, you just haven't been training that much before you think like, Oh, I need like more contacts, but it was like having that much training build up. It was, yeah. Like less is more is like a way to, to describe it. Like it just like felt like a natural, natural build from, from all of our training. Um, yeah, seeing the U S in our pool. I mean, it's, we know that we can compete with them. We, we took them to five. That was in pool play. That was an incredible game. Um, ultimately fell short, sad, but we are just, there's a confidence in like being so familiar with them and playing with them so much. Um, but just that being so hungry, never having, never having yet, having, having a win. Um, so definitely. Yeah what you said, the confidence is definitely there. Just having, yeah, I had so many months of training and having such like having, like you said, Lionel, I mean, knowing somebody scouting, having our coaches work like hours on, on game plans, having our high performance director there, like just having the whole support system. It, it was the most, um, the most prepared and like integrated, I would say tournament that we've ever had. We have not trained that much immediately prior to the tournament before. Now, as, as the tournament progresses and obviously you're doing well and battling tough teams in pool, but as the playoff draw comes up and you know, you got to battle Italy and then Slovenia has to win their game, but you're on a collision course to play Brazil and USA in the finals and not in the semi, like how did you guys stay grounded and know that Italy's a good team? We're playing Italy and not think like, Oh, like we, we won't play USA in the semis. Like, I think it's easy to look ahead, but how did you guys, either the coaches or the leaders on the team stay focused and say, okay, even though the draw uh, is maybe in our favor, we still have work to do. I think literally just like that talking about it, it's there's a balance between like looking at the draw, knowing the draw, playing out different like routes and being like aware of that versus like obsessing over it. <laughs> like, I can't wait to play in the final. Like I can't, but like that's not really the language. We weren't like talking like that. We're very day to day. Time moves literally so slow when you're <laughs> in there. Like 24 hours feels like so long. Um, we, I think, just like held that language and really focused game by game, day to day, everybody, we're not like monitoring like how people are talking or like everybody can look at the draw themselves and like athletes can, can figure it out themselves. But as a team, really focusing game by game, like collectively the languages around like what's next, like just talking about like quarters is next, like we're excited for our quarter, like just the language of, of that instead of having really broad, like we're excited to, you know, maybe qualify, like instead of talking about it in such a higher broad sense, like really day to day focused on that. We, um, as a leadership group, myself, Danielle and Joanne met often with, with Nicole, our head coach, like every day or every second day, just to stay on the same page. Just like, how are you guys doing? How's everybody feeling? Um, all of like us athletes, all we get along, we talk. Um, so really just being, all on the same page. And I think we were also like really excited to, to play Italy in our quarter, having just literally played them for five days <laughs> previous. So it was um, exciting and the game was exciting and they took a set too. And it was, yeah, we played um, so many different types of games. Like our first 
game against Slovenia was a grind, (laughs) an absolute grind. (laughs) Um, Playing Iran, a really high energy team, playing the U.S., different style, going to five, Um, just then beating Italy, or I guess also playing Hungary and then uh, playing Italy. Um, Lots of different games to build, like different confidence in different scenarios, and especially playing Italy. It would be not easy is the wrong word, but could have like succumbed to that pressure. Absolutely. And been like, um, unsure of ourselves in that moment, but we were just like, we had, we won both our last games against them when we were there um, in, in straight sets and just the style. That's the best volleyball we've ever played were, were those games against them and really taking that into the tournament, a much increased pressure situation <laughs> going from playing that good, no pressure to having to play that style in ultimate pressure. Um, it, it carried through, especially even going down the set. Um, so I think that that game was a huge, huge confidence builder, especially going into Slovenia in the final. Um, and just, yeah, as I said before, really committing to like our style of play, really just trusting each other, putting in your best serve, working on a few different, a few different things. And, trying to stay a little bit unpredictable, but also do the, do the good, the important things well. And how did you feel the day of the finals? Because uh, one thing I've learned just by doing the show that like, when we have someone like Marquise on the show, he'll say, you know, everyone wants to say it's calm and everything's the same and you have your routine. He's just like, when I was at the Olympics, I learned that was a bunch of baloney and it's different. And if you don't, if you don't recognize the stakes, it'll eat you up. Right. So did you guys talk about this is world champs, this is different, or did you try to keep it business as usual as much as you could? really interesting because we didn't play them we watched them play we we played our semi we started 30 minutes our semi before they played theirs against the states we watched their last set um when they when they beat the states in their semi that's the first time i've really like watched them play i wasn't really around for any of their games and we obviously hadn't played them yet in the tournament um we knew what their lineup was we knew the athletes that they brought different and some girls weren't there that we typically see and brought some new some older players back as new players so we were just lightly familiar. Um, and our coaches worked really hard on that game plan. Bless them. They have a lot of footage to, to watch. Um, thank you. Mine now as well. But the, the day of totally, you're still right. It's, I was, I don't even remember what time we played. I think we had a serve pass that day <laughs> at like nine or 10. I think we played at four thirty. Um, we, we're definitely excited and and nervous. The surf pass was pretty similar as it was every every day. The vibes were the same. It's just one of the same three playlists we use, same vibes, like same exact structure. Every surf pass, like the vibes are are all pretty much there. Um, but it's that that in between, like lunch, rest, nap period where you're like, I just like I want to play now. Like I just want to be doing it right now. <laughs> but you're like, I don't play for five hours, so I have to like sleep and like have a nap and eat lunch and like do everything to get ready but you just want to like be doing it right away so i would say like antsy is like a definitely or you kind of want to get in it because like you're preparing for it you're thinking about your game plan doing video you're going over your notes your role your job etc and but you can't you can't do it yet <laughs> it's like reviewing all your strategy without being able to like physically do anything about it yet and that moment we have hours more to wait so that was that was, and I just built like into a long time. I remember warming up with Danielle. I'm like, I'm like, I'm literally, I'm ready. Like, let's do it. Like <laughs> right now, getting <laughs> warm up, anthems, like all the things. So it's, yeah, we had a lot of energy going into that. And I don't remember every like conversation I had. Our team goal was to medal. Um, and we, we achieved that goal. But I mean, when you're, when you're in it, you're like, we're like, going for the world like duh. we're not like oh this is good enough <laughs> not gonna like play like everybody wants to win duh. but um it was uh it was a weird game it was i mean each game went to their own we i would say brazil is definitely like a rival of us as well like the u.s is typically historically the best in our zone and then it's obviously brazil battling often for like as lima and in other situations um so it was, yeah, it was a struggle. <laughs> it, was, it was very, uh, very, uh, very, like just everything. Um, yeah, 
the reflection is is hard. It's it's a different sort of loss than losing to them in in Tokyo. Um, it was a very different response, at least personally. Um, coming now, like out of it, however many weeks it's been, three weeks, like it's. I'm just like really proud of us and all our growth and everything we showed. Like we're like the top three teams at the tournament are all from our zone, Brazil, US, Canada. Like it's all from the Parapanam zone. And I'm really proud of that. We're definitely a top, top three, four, five team. Like that definitely shows. Um, and as per like our previous conversation about Halifax, we like now we're winning. Now we like know our potential of coming into this many years after and just really, really just like showing how good we are. And having that much confidence, I'm, I'm truly, really so proud of us, but I really wanted that goal now. That was really rough. <laughs> that was really, really rough. <laughs> so with so many people jumping on, wanting to be fans, wanting to support the team, uh, you mentioned in previous years, if you were in the finalist of Worlds, I believe you qualified for Paris, or, or excuse me, would have qualified for the upcoming uh, Paralympics, but that's not the case this cycle. So what does it look like going into Paris? Obviously, uh, a Parapan Games next year, like what, what is the qualification pathway? What's next for the squad? We are hosting in Edmonton, I believe the dates are May 9th to 15th. Um, our zonal event so normally our zonal event is inside the parapan games which was previously toronto and Lima, but this cycle the sitting model is not in the in the parapan games they're in chile so they took sitting model out there are certain sports oh. in rotation currently um to make room for other sports i don't i don't know what the sports are in but um so sitting volleyball is not in the parapan games which would be like our zonal event so now we have to have <laughs> a zonal event um which is just a sitting volleyball event not like a big multi-sport at all so we in Edmonton are hosting the men's and women's um pan american yeah pan american uh, qualifier um so there are eight spots for the paralympics um one is the host there are four zones of the world top from every zone world championships is a spot gold gold from world cup and gold from a last chance qualifier. Previously, like you said, it would have been top two at World Championships, but now it's gold at World Championships, gold at World Cup, which are two big uh, parallel tournaments. So, lucky us, the first cycle that it's not top two at World Championships, now we have to call a different way. It's fine. Um, so, Brazil obviously already qualified from getting gold at World Championships. So in our zonal event, we have to place higher than the USA, which just translates to beating the USA, um, which will be very difficult, very, extremely difficult. They are the number one team in the world, two-time reigning Paralympic gold medalist. Um, but we are definitely closing that gap. It's literally just winning. Like it's that's also reflective of our gold medal match with Brazil. Like skill wise like we're, we're right in there it's just like who's going to show up and who's going to like win that day and who can implement the game plan adjust as it goes and adapt like who's just going to like win and, and score <laughs> period <laughs> throughout the whole game so that's that's really it um now to clarify will brazil be in edmonton even though they've already qualified they're still going to compete in this event is that is that fair to say it's a world parabole that's like the whole world of parabole world parabole event uh, Paravali Pan Am event, um, and it's for world ranking points. So absolutely, they will they will as well attend. Um, and then after that, in November, is the World Cup, which is in Cairo, um, and that is any team can go. So then it will be the highest ranked non qualified team. So just say, um, I'd like to say the U.S. qualified or we just say we qualify at our zonal event in, in Edmonton. It's like if we get gold and silver, us in Brazil and in the World Cup and the U.S. gets bronze, they can qualify. Like it's the highest rate, not qualified team. And before World Cup, all the zonal events will have happened in Europe, Asia, Africa, Pan America. So that's also quite nice. Um, so whoever gets highest rank, not qualified out of World Cup and then in the I don't, it's not set yet, but like February, March, April will be like the last chance qualifier, which will be literally the last chance you have to get gold. Um, at, I'm not sure, sure when or where that would be, um, but those are the qualification opportunities. We have three more chances. Um, I've 
again, as we talked about earlier, I've already mapped out every possibility, <laughs> every, <laughs> every, every option. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in it. Um, and it's nice going into world cup. Like we got a lot of world ranking points for silver at, at world championships. So it definitely helps moving forwards, seeding into, into world cup. Like we were, I think sixth going into this world championships and it definitely made it harder. You're like on the snake back trail of the, getting seated. And we're now up here. Top three, I think. Coming out of Worlds, I think we're third now. It or should be if the World Ranking points hold the same as the Oswald Championships. Um, so yeah, the seating will just be be different and more in our favor moving forwards, which is nice as well. It's also nice to be third. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. And thanks third. for the detail and explaining how it works. Cause like I said, we we, we want to support. So you've explained tactically, you've explained uh, the process. So just a, a great team to follow. Um I do have to ask though, you mentioned a big part of Servant Pass is the playlist. Who gets the ox cord on the team? Uh, I would probably, well, Danielle always brings her speaker, but she doesn't always DJ. I would say Julie Cozen. <laughs> She's a big SoundCloud guy, big, uh, yeah. Yeah, she knows. She knows the mixes. And we definitely usually use SoundCloud because it's all like pre-made, like DJ like playlists as well. It's better. Um, so definitely her. Or she just tells me what to play and I play it. <laughs> It can be a lot of pressure. Yeah, definitely, Julie. That's anybody <laughs> would probably answer that. Well, Heidi, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So close to you guys taking down the silver there, world champs. So glad we could get you on the show and hear the behind the scenes. So thanks for sharing so much that you did. Thanks for having me and come and watch us in if you're, if you're around the area in May. It's, uh, it's a privilege to, to host and such like a big, important event. Yeah, it'll be exciting.